So glad you could be with us on this beautiful Sunday morning, isn't it? Uh, one of the most beautiful drives I've had since moving here was this morning with the sun just right on the horizon. It was a beautiful morning. And I hope you enjoy worshiping the Lord today and that uh, your heart is changed when we're done. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, I don't know, uh, I don't know if uh, you guys had breakfast or not before you came here, how many are hungry, but uh, I just want to talk to you for a minute and just ask you a question. What, do you, what comes to mind when you think the term Sunday dinner? I don't know how many of you had Sunday dinner when you were growing up or even when your children were younger. Uh, we have uh, many different memories from Sunday dinner, right? I remember some of my fondest memories were when we were in Wisconsin. Believe it or not, we were in the middle of nowhere, and there was a Bible college further in the middle of nowhere. It would be one of those situations where if you just take off on 522 and just start driving towards the Shenandoah and then just put a pin down in the middle of nowhere and stick 700 students in the college, that's literally what it was. It was in the middle of nowhere, 90 miles from Green Bay, Wisconsin, this college was. But anyway... A lot of them came to our church, and uh, from time to time, we'd have them over on Sunday afternoons uh, for the meal. And what was good about those meals is that you learned way more about those young people th there at that meal than you ever would just seeing them week in and week out at church. And I think that's the case with all of us, isn't it? Uh, Sunday dinner, we... We uh, express our affection towards one another when we have them over for a meal. We, um, it's, it's part of our social fabric, and it, it binds us together. When you have a meal with somebody over at your house, it's, it's almost like a, a binding thing. It, it, it joins us together. That was very much the case in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, even more so in Paul's day. Um, they, who you ate with. Uh, was all about your loyalty and your association. If you remember, Jesus was condemned because he ate with sinners, right? Pharisees didn't do that. No association, so there's no binding uh, with, with those kind of people by the Pharisees. And so Jesus was condemned because to eat with the sinners meant that you were binding with them. Having a meal establish a bond with people in ways more profound and probably more significant than we can even imagine today. And so in Paul's day, many of the meals that people ate together were sacred meals. You know what I mean by when I say that? Uh, I know for a lot of you, a sacred meal would be sitting around watching the Redskins play on a Sunday afternoon. But um, uh, beginning with his time in Judaism, Paul was familiar with sacred meals. The most famous one that we know of would be what? Passover. Passover was a very long meal. It took several hours to go through that meal. There was a fellowship that went on over a Passover meal. Jews with one another and then uh, individuals with God, the Jews with God. In fact, sacrifices were considered meals with God. When you offered a sacrifice at a temple... You were offering a meal to that God. You were, you were dining with that God. As a matter of fact, in the passage we're going to read in just a moment, there's a phrase that says, the Lord's table. And the Lord's table refers to the altar. 
in the Old Testament. So there was a, there was a meal with God. Um, sacrifices were considered that. The Corinthians were very familiar with that, sacred meals. Almost every occasion where people got together to eat, the meal was dedicated to a certain deity. And so think about this. You're a believer in one, the one true God, and you're a member of a trade guild, and now you have to go and eat a meal with everybody in your trade guild, and that meal is dedicated to a deity. Well, for the Corinthians, this would amount to idolatry, wouldn't it? And so Paul uses this occasion to warn the, the Corinthians and the believers about idolatry. And if you will stand with me, we will read God's word together. Verse number 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at, in the altar? What do I imply then? That food alter, offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no way. He's saying no. The, the idols aren't anything at all. I imply that what pagans sacrificed, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There it is. That's an altar. He's talking about an altar there. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let us pray together. We, we thank you, Lord, for uh, communion. And we're going to talk about what that word means in a minute. We thank you for the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. We thank you for the significance of it. But Lord, we must confess that all of us are prone to idolatry of one form or another. And I ask that you will impress upon our hearts and show us the idols that we have in our hearts. But also, Lord, impress upon us how wonderful it is that we have fellowship with the creator of the universe, the one who saved us, in Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much. So Paul just jumps right into his point by this time, and he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And notice something, he uses that word beloved in verse number 14, so he loves these people. Well, how do you, how do you know that he loves these people? You know it because if you read 1 Corinthians, he has spent from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way until now, building up to saying, flee from idolatry. Have you ever had something really hard to say to somebody you really love? I mean, if, it, if it's your employee, it's pretty easy to say, hey, look, uh, straighten up. But if it's somebody you love, you know, maybe your wife or your husband or maybe a mother or father who... Uh, you really need to say something to, what do you do? You, you gradually build into it, don't you? Because you love them and you care for them. And that's what Paul is doing. He's taken two chapters of 1 Corinthians to build to his point, which is 
flee from idolatry. There's an urgency in his command. Look back at the previous verse. Look at verse number uh, 13. What does he say? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. Bear it, I think is a King James uh, that I memorized when I was younger. God in his marvelous grace provides a way of escape. And here, the counsel is, when the way of escape comes, make sure you take it. And here's my counsel. When you come upon idolatry, flee. Get out of it. Get out of its presence. Don't try to tough it out. Don't try to and explain it away. Don't try to push through it. Run. Get away from it. And so flee from idolatry. Now the question is that all of us ask, and many of us know the Sunday school answer, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is, uh, for some reason my slides aren't advancing, Hannah. Can you uh, advance? Thank you. Uh, Idolatry is worshiping something other than the one true God. It's worshiping something other than the one true God. How many worship somebody other than God today? It strikes at the very character of God. Those who worship an idol declare that the Lord is not the only true God, but rather that other so-called gods are worthy to share in his glory and honor. To commit idolatry, to worship another God, is to say that the Lord is deficient, that he's not all-wise, that he's not all-powerful, and that he's not all-sufficient. That's what idolatry is. You're saying, yeah, but I didn't worship Zeus this morning. Well, true, but idolatry includes much more than burning incense to a physical image. Idolatry is having any kind of false god, uh, any object, any, you ready, philosophy, any habit, a habit can be an idol, any occupation or sport, whether it's one's primary concern and loyalty or if it in any degree at all decreases your trust and loyalty in God, that's an idol. I really want to worship you, God, but man, I really want to build up my 401k. Hmm. I really want to worship you, God, but, and we throw something else out there, whatever it is. And so everyone worships, and many of us in the West worship material gods. Listen, these verses in Job are striking. Hannah, you're going to have to just uh, forward. My clicker is not working right now. Go to the next slide. Thank you. Listen to Job. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, 
or because my hand has found much. Now, just think for a minute. Does that not sound like uh, the culture that we're in right now? If I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to the God above. What do you think about those words? What do you think about those words? That is, that could be modern America. These 4,000-year-old words could be describing our culture today, couldn't it? How many people do you know that wealth is their God? Materialism is their God. They're trusting in it. And when the stock market tanks, so does their mood. When the stock market goes up, they're happy individuals. When they get a raise or whatever else it happens to be. And so idolatry is not just materialism, though. It takes on many different forms. Uh, One form is maligning the character of God. Maligning the character of God. What is this? This is probably the most common form of idolatry. How do we malign the character of God? We malign God's character by not trusting him. When we doubt that he is able or willing to meet every need that we have. When we doubt God, in our, we're saying in our hearts, I question whether your word is reliable. Your promises are true. Your power is sufficient. Or your love is unlimited. Whatever it happens to be. You know, that, that, is, my, that is my weekly struggle. This morning the struggle was very severe. I'm going to be honest with you. Just praying to the Lord this morning. Even in, in the truck on the way here, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, I feel like this sermon is not going to impact anybody's lives unless you're there. I can't change my sermon. I can't change my, I can't repeat something 50 times and hope it gets in somebody's heart. Lord, it is you and you alone who change people's hearts, right? We have to do that. We can't be the Holy Spirit. If you have a child that's a little bit wayward, you have somebody you want to to get saved or whatever, you can't just over and over and over be the Holy Spirit for them. You have to eventually trust the Holy Spirit and trust what God says and says, I am more than sufficient, right? Parents. But there's another way that we commit idolatry. We worship the true God in the wrong way. What I mean by that is adopting worldly practices in church services is a form of idolatry. What, what would that be? I'm not going to start naming them, okay? Because then you're going to go out from here and say, uh, Jared was talking about so-and-so and so-and-so in this church and that church. I'm not going to do it. But there are worldly practices going on in churches. Think about, think about a worldly practice in the Old Testament. The, the Israelites, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up in the cloud. I talked about that last week. They wanted to worship God, so what did they do? They create a golden calf. And then Mo, uh, Aaron said, Israel, here, are, here is your God. Here are your gods. They were worshiping the one true God in the wrong way. We have to be very careful about that. 
and what we know about their worship, and this is important, what we know about their worship is their worship pleased them. We learned that last week, didn't we? And so when you have a church whose philosophy says we are going to worship in such a way that people who are not believers enjoy it, you might just have a problem. Because the main question we are to ask when we worship God is, Lord, are we worshiping you in spirit and in truth? That's the big question. The other ones don't matter. And I'll tell you what, let me just say this. When we worship God in spirit and truth, those who are in spirit and truth love it. It's not about forms. It's not about styles. It's all about who we worship. Are we worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Here's another one. Worshiping angels. May not be quite as common in our culture, but listen to this verse. This is Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by sensuous mind. That's, that's a false teacher. You, you have somebody who talks about visions. Be alarmed because that's a false teacher. Over and over and over in the Bible, somebody who has visions is a false teacher. Okay? Another one ultimate loyalty in our, in our hearts to anything other than God. Ultimate loyalty in our hearts to anything other than God. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Do you know what our greatest idol is? Self. I am my greatest treasure most of the time. You are your greatest treasure most of the time. Isn't it true? And so we have to watch out for this one. Let me give you another one. Covetousness. Those who covet or are greedy worship at the shrine of materialism. And it's one of the most popular and powerful idols of our day. Listen to Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, and then it has, Paul has in brackets, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If your idolatry is materialism and covetousness, then you don't have part in God. And then let me give you one more. There's a, there's a lot of them, but let me just give you one more. Inordinate desire or lust. Inordinate desire or lust. The person whose mind, desires, longings, appetites are set on fleshly things. That's an idolater. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. How do they walk as enemies of the cross? Keep listening. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glories are shame, and their minds are with minds set on earthly things. That's Philippians 3, 18 and 19. God is their belly does not mean that they're just gluttons. What it means is they love fleshly things things, pampering the flesh, taking care of themselves. Um, can I tell you one of the greatest enemies of Christian discipleship is comfort. Comfort is one of our greatest enemies, and we have to be careful that we're not giving into that, because giving in the comfort 
is giving in to your flesh, pampering yourself. Well, that's idolatry. But Paul begins to argue then, not only flee idolatry, but why? Why do we flee idolatry? And the first thing he says is because our communion is with Christ alone. Because our communion is with Christ alone. And he, he, he unpacks this argument in a vertical plane and a horizontal plane. I want to show this to you. Look at verse number 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? What is he saying? Idols are dangerous because we have communion with Christ. The Lord's Supper establishes and deepens a real spiritual bond. Paul teaches here, I want you to look at it, particularly those from a Baptist background. I'm, I'm from a Baptist background, just to let you know, okay? Paul teaches that it establishes a fellowship, a communion, a participation in his body and blood. And the reason I'm saying that is I grew up Baptist, and the emphasis as a Baptist is that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. This do in remembrance of me. That's the emphasis of it. But Paul is teaching here that it is far more than just a, a remembrance. It's all you Presbyterians are saying, yeah, I know. We've been trying to tell you for years. I don't want to start religious wars here, okay? But notice the word that he uses. Look at verse number 16 again. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? You know what that word is? In the original, it's koinonia. We most often know that word as fellowship. Fellowship. It's sharing. It's a partnership. It's communion. In, in, uh, in Philippians, he talks, he commends the Philippians for their partnership and their partnership with Paul was in their giving. And so this is a, it was a very full uh, word that when he says participation, it's not, hey, look, I'm just going to go do this thing with him. It's a deep fellowship and, and <coughs> sharing and a partnership with Christ when we eat that bread and drink that cup. We have communion. We have fellowship with the Lord himself. By the way, the very word communion comes from this concept. We're communing with God. We're communing with Christ. We have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mysterious and supernatural reality when, that takes place when believers clinging to Christ by faith alone sit at the Lord's table. And they eat the bread and drink the cup of blessing. You ever think of it that way? The bread and the wine don't turn into anything. There's no change that takes place in them. They remain ordinary bread, ordinary wine, ordinary juice, whatever you want to say. But somehow, listen, this is important, somehow in the mighty working of the Holy Spirit, Christ's body 
and blood are communicated to the faith of believers as we eat and drink. We commune with Christ. He feeds us with himself. We are nourished with him. And this sounds strange. Well, John, listen to John 6, 53 through 55. Listen to these words. This is Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he said that right after the feeding of 5,000. There's all these Jewish people that followed him across the Sea of Galilee to the other shore, thousands of them. And he's not impressed with the crowds. And he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have eternal life. And I'm sure they're going, oh, gross. What on earth is he talking about? Well, he didn't, he didn't explain this until the last Passover, did he? What is my body? It's broken for you. What is my blood? It was shed for you. And when you eat this memorial, you're eating my flesh and my blood. Does that make sense? There's a great mystery in all this. And it seems weird or even gruesome. We, we, in the West, we want to sanitize it, don't we? But that's the language of the Bible. And in fact, we need to embrace the glory and the mystery and the enormity of what we enjoy by faith in the gospel as it's communicated to us at, I'm going to use the term, the Lord's table. We enjoy Christ himself. We participate in his body in his blood, and we feast by faith upon Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And that's the vertical plane, but there's a horizontal plane in the very next verse. Verse number 17, he says this. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Kind of, I was thinking, I didn't, uh, I was laughing about this. I, I thought you've heard the phrase, blood runs thicker than water, right? Yeah. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about uh, drinking his blood uh, today, or this, this week, because there's, there's a, a communion that goes on. There, most likely, these congregations, let me explain just a minute, these congregations, like in Corinth, uh, the congregation there, and these other cities, they're very small. And so initially, they would meet in people's homes around the city. And when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, there was one single common loaf of bread. Uh, if they followed the Jewish tradition, it had no yeast in it, and so it was a flatbread, and they'd rip off a piece of flatbread, and they would eat it together. Kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah, you germaphobes. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't want to do that either. With, I don't want to eat a piece of bread that 50 of you have already handled. I just don't want to do that. Don't judge me either. <laughs> and so as the bread was passed, it was broken. Each received a morsel from the same loaf. 
And because we partake of the one bread, which is an emblem of our common communion with Christ himself, we are in fact one body. We are one, not just with Jesus, but we're one in Christ with one another. Isn't that great? And you, I look around, extreme diversity of people here, extreme likes and dislikes, different backgrounds growing up from all over the country. And yet, because of Christ, because of our communion, we're one with one another, one body. Just amazing to think about. Now, what does Paul do? He doesn't stop there. He gives an Old Testament example to illustrate his point. He says in the next verse, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar. When the Israelites sacrificed to the Lord, what they sometimes did, not all the time, sometimes, it depended on the sacrifice, a portion of the offering was burnt on the altar, a portion was given to the priest, And then a portion was taken by the person giving the offering to eat themselves, thus signifying a meal with God. They were eating a meal with God, you see. And um, that was was eaten by the people offered. So everyone was involved in the offering, God and the priest and the people. Likewise, to sacrifice to an idol, to identify with it, to, to participate with that idol, And with all the others who sacrifice it in religious ceremonies, whether Christian or pagan, it it involved all the worshipers together with the object of the worship and with one another. And that, people, is completely inconsistent for believers. To participate in any expression of worship that is a part and contrary to their belief in God. It's just idolatry. And so he says that idolatry is, is um, flee idolatry because it, we have communion with God. It maligns the character of God. We have communion with God. And the third thing he says is that we flee idolatry because idolatry is serious. Look at uh, verse number 19. What do I imply then? <coughs> that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, he already acknowledged previously that an idol is just a lump of wood or a lump of stone or something like that. That's all it is. It's just a lump. It's nothing. But, and here's very important, but idolatry is not harmless. Because when we are deceived into false worship, it's not nothing that we are worshiping. Certainly, there's no such God as Apollo or Artemis or Shiva or Krishna or any of the other millions upon millions of gods that have been invented by humans over over the ages. The God that you create for yourself is not the God who is there, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, But if we dabble in false religion, Paul says, and this is important, standing behind whatever false religion there is, is a real spiritual presence. 
and it's Satan and his demons. And they're real. They're real. Sometimes I think that we as Westerners, we think that we're far too sophisticated to believe in any such thing. We're materialists. There's nothing, uh, that's, that's the way our children are trained in school, isn't it? There's nothing beyond the physical reality. We're materialists. But there is a such thing as a demonic world. Evil is real. And Paul says it's not safe to play with it, to dabble in it. Remember in the 80s, the Ouija board? Remember that? I'm going to throw out another one here. There is a secret organization that claims to be Christian, but has incorporated all kinds of religion in, in its lodge, the Masons. That is idolatry. And if you're a Mason, I'm sorry I offended you. It's idolatry. Because they're pulling in from all world religions. That's a form of idolatry. It's a form of, of spiritual um, worshiping demons. And so these Corinthians, they were, they were sitting at the Lord's table on, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And then on Monday... Maybe for a business meeting, uh, they would go to the temple of Artemis or Apollo or, or some of the other gods because they were there with clients, maybe a business associate. And at the start of the meal, a sacrifice would be made to whatever pagan god, patron god, I'm sorry, patron god that their business associate wishes to invoke that day. And so the Corinthians were saying to themselves, this is what they were doing, they were rationalizing it. Now, we never rationalize anything, do we? They were rationalizing. They were saying, yeah, we know that an idol is nothing. Sound familiar? We saw that earlier in 1 Corinthians. There's no God called Apollo. Apollo is nothing. So no harm, no foul, right? Why give needless offense to my business associate? I don't want to lose his business, so I'm just going to go along with it because I know better. And nobody here would ever be tempted to do such a thing. But Paul said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So the Lord suffers worshiping God, and when you eat a meal to a pagan idol, that's also worshiping that God. Don't kid yourself. You can compromise with the world and faithfully follow Jesus at the same time is just absolutely not true. Remember the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew uh, 6.24? Look at what he says. He says, no one can serve two masters. Go on to the next slide, if you will. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot, and notice what he does with the master's thing. You cannot serve what? God and money. Was that what the Corinthians were doing? Yeah. They were compromising with a pagan God so they could serve money. Bottom line. They didn't trust God when he said, I will take care of you. How many of us do such a thing? 
When we willingly ignore God's way and flirt with Satan by setting up idols of any kind, we open ourselves up to demonic influence. Now, you might be saying here, seriously, Jared, you're saying that covetousness or greed or lust are putting ourselves under demonic influence? I am because the Bible says it. Look at Acts 5.3. It says this. This is Peter talking to Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part for yourself of the proceeds of the land? Through the idol of greed, he and his wife, Sapphira, left themselves open to be corrupted by demons. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. It's serious business, isn't it? Serious business, this idolatry. Well, flee idolatry because it mines God's character because... Um, it's, it's serious. And then number three, because we will provoke God to jealousy. Look at verse number 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, idolatry is demonic and offensive to the Lord. And God is jealous because he won't have competition. The Lord deals strongly with idolatry because nothing is more offensive to God than idolatry. It's a detestable sign of unbelief. When God is described as a jealous God, it's always said in the context of his response to idolatry. Always. I'm a jealous God. Look it up. It's always in response to idolatry. You know what it's like? It would be like the husband who catches his wife eating with another man. The Lord is appropriately jealous of our love. He wants it all. Communion is a reminder of the links that our Lord and God has gone to to secure and win our life. He gave his son to the mockery of the cross. His body torn by the lash and the nails. Jesus Christ dying for us, shedding his blood for us. You know, when we come to trust in Christ, we are betrothed to him, right? We're the bride. We are bound to him as a bride to her husband by covenant. We are his, and he is ours. But when we rationalize superstition, indulge in false religion, in, in the name of perhaps inclusivism or, or tolerance, that's a big one today, we might as well appease the politically correct spirit of the age. But when we do that, we provoke the Lord to jealousy. And we are not stronger than we are, or we are not stronger than he, are we? No, we're not. We can't eat at his table and eat at the table of another lover. And this, dear believer, is the glory of communion. Would you ever want to eat at another's table? after what Christ did for you? Why would you want to eat at another's table when Christ is always available to sustain and to nourish you? Christ, who is sufficient for every need of your heart, why go anywhere else? That's the heart of what's available to us in this means of grace that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, in the word that is preached 
And in the word that is seen and handled and tasted in the Lord's Supper, Christ and all his benefits, praise God, are more than enough. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the profound truth of the Lord's Supper. Communion with the God of the universe. We thank you, Lord, that you are all sufficient. That you take care of our every need, spiritual, emotional, physical, material, whatever it is. But Lord, we're familiar with the words of John Calvin who said, our hearts are idle factories. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you will illuminate our hearts, show us where we're prone to idolatry, and help us to confess and forsake it. And, Lord, when we do, when we turn from it, I pray that we will run to our marvelous, wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, and commune with him, not only at the Lord's Supper, but each day in the Word, and each day in prayer, and each day as we are in awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought us with a price, and therefore, he is our glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.